0: Wonderwork power in the pressure as they seem are not the results of massive You may wish to adjust the dial you are currently tuned into the wrong station. It's where I'm supposed to be. That's what she told me. I didn't understand it at the time, but I do now. I've always felt like a piece of me was missing. It didn't seem to matter what I did to fill that void. I was well-liked, even loved at times, but my relationships always seemed to fall just short of being truly fulfilling. My artwork, despite Good sales and complimentary reviews never provided any sort of greater meaning. A life of comfort and acceptance, well, it always seemed to be just around the corner. I offer this as partial explanation. Is this your first time out here? Out by Cape Spear? You probably know this, but Cape Spear is as far east as you can go while staying in North America pokes out into the Atlantic before ending in one of those sheer, rocky drops that are so common in Newfoundland. The wind slices through your jacket like it isn't even there, unbuffered by anything as it blows in from what feels like an entire other dimension. Overlooking the water is an old lighthouse. The oldest lighthouse in Newfoundland, in fact. No surprise there, the Cape has been an important marker for nautical voyages for nearly 200 years. The lighthouse is what you might expect, stark, white icicle of a building, topped by a lantern room where the light sits. And where the light sits, so does a Cantwell. The men of the Cantwell family have worked that light for over 150 years. And that streak of uninterrupted service is what called me to Newfoundland, despite my branch of the family tree having left well over 50 years ago. You see, the old lighthouse was being shut down, replaced with an updated, fully automatic system, So high-tech it could measure fog thickness, replace its own bulb, and prepare breakfast for the lighthouse keeper it didn't need. On a lark, the local government decided to bring in a Cantwell to send off the old light. One last Cantwell night shift before the Cantwell lighthouse was decommissioned forever. For good luck. Trouble is, there aren't many Cantwells left in the country. Nothing sinister, just the nature of human beings to spread out and abroad. But they had me, just a hop, skip, and jump away. The artist living in Ontario, about the farthest thing you can imagine from a lighthouse keeper. I hadn't even set foot in Atlantic Canada in over a decade. Not since my great uncle, the last Cantwell lighthouse keeper, passed away. But there wasn't much keeping me in Ontario at the time. In fact, I needed an escape. My marriage had fallen apart like a shoddy raft. no reconciliation on the horizon. The kids didn't much enjoy seeing me either. I wasn't the most pleasant guy to be around at the time. It also didn't help that I was mired in a creative doldrum. I hadn't produced any works in months, and the bills were starting to pile up. I had the overwhelming sense that the threads of my life had permanently snarled together, a tangle of knots and frayed ends that sat between my throat and my heart, impossible to loosen one without tightening another. So, yes, I needed the escape. I managed to convince myself that the sea air and gorgeous vistas could maybe coax out a few paintings. A watercolor. Hell, at this point I would have taken a sketch on a bar napkin. But what really sealed it was a line in the pleading email I'd received from the Newfoundland Heritage Office. Once a can't will, always a Cantwell. You could say I had a duty to see the old girl off. The place was in my blood. So I scraped myself off the stained mattress in my studio and booked a ticket. I flew into St. John's on a bright day in April. The air was clear enough that I could just barely make out Cape Spear off in the east as the plane banked for its final approach, and beyond that, the endless ocean raging against the rocks. A representative from the heritage office picked me up from the airport and drove me through the city, pointing out landmarks along the way. Some I remembered from childhood trips to visit now-deceased relatives, but most were new to my eyes. (laughs) For being so close to the edge of the world, St. John's is a pretty lively place, filled with colorful houses and friendly people. It's as if someone erected a carnival next to an abattoir, the sort of place that almost seems designed to take your mind off an upsetting nearby reality. Or maybe that was just my interpretation as in interloper. I say Newfoundland is my ancestral home, but at the time I was a Cantwell in name only. I had never lived on the island. I'd never manned the lighthouse, nor had my father. Despite my family history, the place was as alien to me as Mars. I was exhausted and wanted nothing more than to collapse on my hotel bed, but the heritage representative twisted my arm in that friendly Maritimer way. Come on, boy. you can't get away that easy. Until I agreed to at least visit the old lighthouse. We arrived at Cape Spear with the sun still high. The ocean, an infinite darkness, undulated under the bright sky, so huge, so unthinkably vast, that it made the white pillar of the lighthouse seem like nothing more than a sewing pin stuck in the back of some great beast. I briefly considered painting the scene, but the creative impulse died before I'd even finished the thought. Our boots crunched up the walk, passing through the blue shadow of the lighthouse before reaching the entrance. The heritage representative pushed open the old oak doors with one hand and tossed me a beer with the other. Like the outside, the inside of the lighthouse emanated a certain eighteen hundred sturdiness. The floor was made of thick hardwood planks, and in the center of the space, heavy iron stairs spiraled up towards the lantern room. It was eerily silent, the sound of crashing waves muffled by about four layers of 200-year-old brick. The heritage rep showed me the entire structure from top to bottom, including the sheds, or linneys, that had been built to act as living quarters for the Cantwell who kept the lighthouse. Between slurps of beer, the rep explained how the Cantwells tended to live right on Cape Spear to be closer to their work. They farmed most of their own food from the soil around the Cape. It was rare to see a Cantwell in town despite it being only a couple hours away by horse, and, later, twenty minutes by car. This information was new to me. When I'd visited as a child, my grandparents always said that the lighthouse was too far away, and that's why my great-uncle never came to say hello. Strange. Now I thought it must have been some kind of family argument. I wondered which had been buried first, the hatchet or the participants' As I strode around the bottom floor, kicking up the fine layer of dust that carpeted it, my gaze was caught by a metal trapdoor laying in the corner. The representative kicked at the iron ring handle. An old storage room, he explained, but they'd lost the key. I was only half listening. I must admit, I'd been excited to see the lighthouse. Hell, I'd been excited just to arrive in Newfoundland. A small, naive part of me expected that Seeing this land, this object that dominated my family tree, would somehow rinse my life clean. I would be handed a purpose, like it had done for my ancestors. But as I brushed my hands along the walls, feeling for hidden runes or ley lines, I felt nothing except plaster. The heritage representative was a knowledgeable man, but there's only so much you can say about a lighthouse, even an interesting one. So, as we climbed the spiral staircase to inspect the glass dome where the light had once beckoned, it began to tell me about the other anomaly Cape Spear is known for. It was discovered in 1967. A graduate student digging among the rocks came across a deep-sea fossil. A strange one. Over the next few years, dozens more fossils would be discovered along this stretch of coast. And they all shared one thing in common. Their immense age. These fossils are all the evidence we have of the Ediacaran period. The heritage rep told me. Half a billion years old. The oldest marine fossils on the planet. You see them and these animals. They're so divorced from animals today that they may not even have been animals in the traditional sense. They look like culting patterns or concentric circles or fingerprints. The kind of stuff you might... Doodle in a waiting room. One of the guys was saying they might be lichens, but even then our lichens are separated from them by more than half a billion years. He drained the last of his beer. So, you see, Cape Spear doesn't just sit on the edge of the world. It also sits on the edge of the past. A place teetering between being here and being somewhere else. He was a bit drunk. I had a few days before I would be required to christen the new lighthouse, and I figured exploring would take my mind off the situation I had waiting for me at home. "'Where are those fossils?' I asked. The next morning, I trekked about ten minutes down the coast, walking towards a small, low building—a tourism office. I followed the rep's instructions and bypassed completely, instead walking to where a wide, rocky shelf jutted out into the ocean. I took off my sunglasses— and was immediately dazzled by the ferocious white sun blazing off the water. The rocks here, in contrast, were black, looking almost like silhouettes to my half-blinded eyes. I walked along the shelf, keeping away from the edge, bouncing with my arms out like a kid walking along the edge of a curb. Slowly, my eyes adjusted and the fossils came into view. They were imprinted on the black rock, as clear as if they'd been drawn on with chalk just minutes before I arrived. And as I walked along the rocks, staring at the bizarre forms, something began to happen. Perhaps it was the white noise of the ocean, or the solitude, or maybe just the beauty of the place, but my fears, my anxieties about work and family, it's as if they began to drain away. For the first time since it had appeared, that tangle of knots in my chest began to unspool of its own accord. Muscles I didn't even know I had began to loosen, and my eyelids drooped. As the waves crashed and receded against the shore, I felt my mind empty itself, the contents carried out to sea. Then... Ever so slightly, I began to feel a pulse of silent noise, like when a bass note is so low it can only be heard in your gut. The pulse traveled into my feet, up to my head, and back down again, reverberating. (sighs) I came to call this the thrum. What the representative said was true. These rocks were ancient like almost nowhere else. Half a billion years. They buzzed like a huge tuning fork resonating with the bottom of my mind. Far below the lizard brain. Lichen brain. Protozoa brain. I wanted to lay motionless on the rocks and photosynthesize, absorbing salt from the ocean spray. For the first time since I had left Toronto, I was no longer worried about my art, or my family, or anything, in fact. In moments, I had achieved something that I had failed to after months of therapy and various forms of medication. This was not just the absence of desire. This was... The absence of absence. The comfort I'd sought from the lighthouse could have never matched this feeling. I'm not sure how long I stood there. I just know that I was shaken from my proto-conscious state by an employee from the tourism office. She'd been trying to get my attention for fifteen minutes, she said. The place was closed, and I needed to go. It's not safe to be near the water after dark. I looked away from her my cheeks burning red. Oh, uh, sorry about that. My mind must have wandered. As I drove toward the lights of St. John's, I felt the thrum recede back to wherever it came from, and slowly my anxieties returned. I glanced down at my phone. I'd missed five calls from my wife, one from the heritage office, and one from my agent. I didn't return any of them. Instead, I resolved to visit Cape Spear the next day. The next morning I walked past the tourism office again, only to be greeted by a large, noisy tour group. It might have been the laughing, or the camera flashes, or perhaps just the guide performing her memorized script about the fossils. But I couldn't find my way back to the thrum and the comfortable nothingness that had consumed me the previous day. Frustrated, I clambered over a ridge and down the rocks, putting enough distance between myself and the group that their voices were smothered by the crashing waves. Here, in this relative solitude, I began to feel something similar to what I'd felt yesterday. I sat down and focused on a single fossil, willing the thrum to pulse through me again. I let my arms drop to my sides, my palms resting on the sun-warmed rock beneath me. But as I did, I noticed something amiss. The entire rock face was smooth for millions of years of erosion, and yet my fingertips had found an unusual curved crack. I looked down. The crack was so thin I wondered how I'd even felt it. It was almost as if it had called to me. I stood up and traced it with my eyes. The crack didn't just curve. It transcribed an entire circle about three feet in diameter, with me standing in the middle. Two notches had been carved on opposite sides. And I do mean carved. They were obviously man-made. Without thinking, I dug my fingers into the notches and pulled, revealing a circular tunnel about the size of a manhole. As I stared into the pitch-black hole... I started to feel the thrum rise up through my body again, stronger this time, much stronger. Whereas before the thrum had merely cradled my mind, it now enveloped it like primeval ooze on the surface of a pond. I had to shake myself, force my brain to stop and think before plunging headfirst into a mysterious tunnel that led… well, where could it lead? Kip Spear had no buildings besides the tourism office and the lighthouse. No sewer system either. All I knew was that the calming pulse of the thrum was beckoning me down into the dark. I looked over my shoulder. No one from the group was nearby. Carefully, I lowered myself down, used my cell phone for light. The first thing I noticed was how smooth the walls of the tunnel felt, like it had been sanded down by master craftsmen. Steep steps carved into the stone rose up to meet my feet as I descended into the dark. The stairs seemed to go down forever, but the torch on my phone revealed very little in the way of clues, beyond the occasional wooden support beam, undeniably man-made. The thrumming faded a bit, overwhelmed by my curiosity and concern, this entire place was a riddle. None of it made sense. Were they digging for fossils? Natural resources? The empty walls provided no answer. As I explored, I took note of the support beams that had been placed every twenty feet or so, which seemed to be of modern construction. After a few minutes of walking, I realized that the tunnel never branched off. Wherever I was headed, there was only one destination. I don't know how long I walked before I reached the end of the tunnel. When I did, I found no heavy machinery, no crew of burly men armed with jackhammers and mining helmets. What I did find was a simple electric light, battery powered, and a pickaxe. I hefted the pickaxe in one hand, bringing it close to the light. It was new. Whoever was building this thing was probably still around. But why? And where was it going? In an instant, the thrum fled my body, pushed aside by a moment of perfect clarity and brash human instinct. My breath became shallow and my body quivered as adrenaline surged through my veins. You see, in my haste I had not taken note of which direction the tunnel led. Now the realization had come crashing down... I knew, with the certainty of a compass, that the tunnel was perfectly straight, flying like an arrow, directly east. Out to where the world ended and the water began. And that could mean only one thing. That was beneath the ocean floor. I flattened myself against the tunnel wall, gasping for air as if the water that thundered and swirled above me had already started gushing in through a crack. Suddenly, the tunnel was no longer a triumph of engineering, it was a claustrophobic death trap. I raced back to the entrance, moving as fast as I felt I could without damaging the integrity of the stone walls. Images of my bloated corpse bobbing forever in this secret tunnel flashed through my mind each time I took too heavy a step. Finally, I felt those steep, rocky steps beneath my feet, and I nearly wept with joy as the sea air drove the stuffy musk of the underground from my lungs. It took me a few moments to notice the tour guide where she sat on the black rocks, the tourists long gone. She was smoking a cigarette and watching me without expression. Her little name tag had been tossed aside. Sue, it read. Inwardly, I cringed like a schoolchild whose past note was about to be read aloud. Whatever that tunnel was there was no way I was permitted access. I tried not to let it show on my face. We eyed each other for a moment. Then she patted the rock next to her. I sat down. So, she said, can I have the pickaxe back? I looked down to where I still clutched the pickaxe in a pale grip. Tendons creaked as I unclenched my fist and laid the tool at her feet. ''Sorry,'' I said. ''Don't worry about it.'' We sat together for a few moments in silence, watching the shadow of the island stretch its dark hand out across the Atlantic. I waited for her to talk, to reprimand me. But she didn't. Instead, she stubbed out her cigarette and slipped the button to an empty sandwich bag. I watched as she stood, stretched, and slung the pickaxe over her shoulder. She was nearly halfway to the tunnel when I called out. She turned to look at me. What? I struggled to figure out what question to ask. There were so many. Where did you get the pickaxe? She looked down at it, as if seeing the tool for the first time. It was here when I got here. Well, what about the tunnel? Did you do all that yourself? She looked down at the hole in the rock and then out to the ocean. No, she said, but I've made pretty good progress so far. I, well, the tunnel, what is it? At that question, her face broke into a beatific smile, and she replied with the confidence of a person giving the answer to one plus one. It's where I'm supposed to be. And with that, she slipped into the tunnel and replaced the lid. I tried to stutter at something else, but she was already gone. After a few moments, I tried to pull up the lid and follow her, but there must have been some locking mechanism I'd missed. It wouldn't budge. Something told me I wouldn't have gotten any more information from her anyway. I returned to the fossil site each morning for the next few days, each time finding the tunnel sealed, The woman was nowhere to be found. I found it impossible not to focus on the tunnel unless I forced myself, requiring effort that was becoming less attractive by the hour. The thrum had abandoned me, but I still felt its impact. More phone calls went to voicemail, more emails went unanswered. If the discovery of the thrum had been a revelation, a life jacket thrown out by the universe... Its loss was the opposite. I felt more aimless than ever before. Worse yet, I was haunted by the tour guide's words. It's where I'm supposed to be. So sure of herself. So confident in what she was doing. She'd understood something I still could not begin to grasp. I floated through the week of heritage events relying on cocktail party instincts I'd honed over the years. But beneath my smooth exterior was roiling frustration. Soon I knew I would have to return to my broken life, all ruined relationships and empty canvases, things that had become irrelevant in the wake of my self-discovery, as distant from me emotionally as the fossils were temporally. Before long, it was my last night at Cape Spear. One night, to discover the true source of the thrum, to Maybe take a small part of it home with me. My plan was to spend the entire evening down by the water's edge, indulging in as much of the thrum as I possibly could. That's why I was more than a little annoyed when the Heritage Rep called. Ready to see the old girl off? He said after I picked up. Of course. I'd forgotten the ceremonial night shift. The light would be kept by Cantwell one last time before the building was shut down for good. It was my only role. There was no way to back out. Yes, all right, I said, trying and failing to keep the edge from my voice. Can you pick me up? The Heritage rep kept shooting me nervous glances in the car. I had completely refused to engage in conversation, silently blaming him for the circumstances. He dropped me off outside the oak doors, handing me a black iron ring spangled with keys. It was about the weight of a human arm. He gave me my instructions, which I barely heard, focused as I was on getting back to the rocks as soon as humanly possible. Barring disaster, I would spend my last hours basking in the moonlight of Cape Spear, like a starfish swept into a tidal pool. All I needed to do, the rep said, was make sure the light was turned on for twenty minutes, then turned off. Other than that, I could just eat work, sleep, and wait for him to pick me up in the morning. My quarters were already made up, and there were some snacks in the mess area if I got hungry. With that, he left, waving tentatively at me from the car as he sped off. The moment he was out of sight, I took the spiral iron stairs three at a time, my shoes clanging against the rough metal. When I reached the light, I lost precious seconds searching for the switch. The bulb shrieked on its stand as I twisted it from side to side, cursing myself for leaving my flashlight downstairs. Then my heart jumped as something clattered to the metal floor. Something must have broken free from all my twisting. But I ignored it, wrenching the stand as far to the left as it would go so I could run my hand along the wires that sprung tentacle-like from the back of the light. They led me to a switch in the far wall, which I flipped. The light blazed out into the darkness, illuminating a circle of water that would have been considered large had it not been in direct comparison to the entire ocean. And as my eyes were drawn back to my surroundings, I noticed that the light also revealed the fallen object. A black iron key, old and flecked with rust. One of my ancestors must have hidden it somewhere inside the light itself. My mind wandered to the locked, cold room. For the first time in days, I felt curious, unsure, and intrigued about something, anything, other than the rocks, the fossils, and the thrum. I placed the key in my pocket and left the light to its work. Moments later, the metal trapdoor lay quietly in the beam of my flashlight. The key was a perfect fit, and the door swung open noiselessly. The hinges had been well kept. My light revealed not a cold room, but instead a set of metal stairs that twisted down and away into the dark and out of sight. Puzzled, I began to descend. The stairs dropped me lower and lower. A hundred feet two hundred, going far deeper than the height of the lighthouse. I traced the wall with my fingertips. It was smooth, as if fingertips had traced it for a century. With each step, my heart rate slowed until it seemed to match the beat of something huge and ancient. It couldn't be. My breathing slowed, matching the rhythm pulsing in my feet couldn't be. At the bottom of the stairs, my fingers brushed along a switch. I flicked it. A series of bulbs flickered to life in front of me, each one illuminating a new section of tunnel. A tunnel that stretched so far into the distance I couldn't even see the end. It was just like the tunnel down by the water, but far more sophisticated. Besides the lights, it appeared to be better reinforced and at my feet I saw someone had installed a rail for a mining cart. To move the debris, I thought. And as I did, I realized I was not the first Cantwell to have that thought. The Cantwells had lived alone in the lighthouse. There was only one person, one family, who could have been responsible for this achievement. I began to walk the tunnel, knowing without checking that I was headed east, that soon an entire ocean would be thundering above my head. With each step, I felt the full weight of the thrum deepen, but also the dawning realization that, whatever the reason for these tunnels, I would find the answer at the end. The tunnel seemed to stretch forever, and I hopped from each flickering circle of light like a frog from lily pad to lily pad. And then, suddenly... I was at the end. A rough rock face blocked my way. It was pockmarked with pickaxe marks. The pickaxe itself was leaned against the tunnel wall. The barcode sticker on the handle had been half-peeled away from use. At that moment, it was hard to imagine that something as ordinary as a hardware store could have any connection to these impossible tunnels. The tool is irrelevant. All that matters is the destination. The thought arrived unbidden, and even though it was meaningless to me, I knew it was true. My eye wandered, taking in everything that the previous Cantwell had left behind. The mining cart was there, still half-filled. Among the rock debris I saw fossils, those half-billion-year-old sketches pressed into the stone walls by the weight of the ocean. They were cracked and shattered, as if tossed into the cart with no thought or consideration. For a moment, my heart broke for those relics. But then the thrum pulsed through my body, and I knew what my Cantwell ancestors had known. These fossils were nothing but trail markers, proof that the digger was on the right path. Then, as if in continuation of that thought, I finally noticed the journals. There were at least twenty of them, stacked on a small, lightweight card table, untitled and unmarked besides whatever markings time had made. They were of all ages, some bound in heavy leather, the newer ones in textured plastic. Eagerly, I approached the stack, sensing the answers to the tunnels, to the thrum, must lay here. I took hold of the oldest volume and flipped open the cover to find instructions page after page of instructions, all detailing the exact methods and techniques one would need to dig an underground tunnel. That was it. That was all. I opened the next journal, more Catwell handwriting, this time in ballpoint. New methods for digging. New materials, exact specifications for screws to attach to the support beams. Nothing else. The same was true for every journal I opened. Together, the journals represented a hundred and fifty years of tunnel digging, but not a single clue as to why. Except on the back page of one unassuming journal, I found the words that had been rattling in my head for days. Written in black ink, it stated, simply, it's where I'm supposed to be. I felt the thrum wash over me, resonating with every cell in my body. I stopped questioning, allowed my body to do what it was meant to do, what it had always been meant to do. I watched as my hand reached for the pickaxe and began to work. My canvases lay bare, my paints dried and cracked. Perhaps my wife and children have called. I wouldn't know. I feel no desire to check. I never left Cape Spear, The culture ministry allows me to live in the lighthouse. All I have to do in exchange is maintain it as a heritage site. Give the occasional boring tour to bored tourists. But it's worth it. Now, alone in my tower, I've come to understand the nature of the thrum. Why it compels me so. It's the murmur of friendly conversation in another room. The heartbeat of a mother thudding just above your amniotic sac. The mumble of digestion after being sufficiently fed. It's all the half-heard sounds that have buzzed through the ears and palps and membranes of every safe and happy organism since the dawn of time. It's the sound of home. Not the paltry shadow homes we humans fill with spouses and children. Not the grotesque homes of friendship and community. This is the true home, where the idea of home first arose in the pseudo-mind of a pseudo-animal five hundred million years ago, The place we've always meant to return to, even if evolution made it impossible. (laughs) Even this lighthouse, which housed Cantwell's for more than a century, was never a home, not even for a second. My ancestors knew it. And now so do I. But with each crack of the pickaxe, I can feel it getting closer. I can sense it like a shark tracks blood. If not behind this rock, then the next one. Or the next one. I know it's out there. In the east, under the waves. And if I get there, When I get there, I know everything will be all right. Even if the water crushes me against the rocks, even if my brains are dashed and my body broken, even if I drown alone in darkness, I will be safe. I will be. home. This week's episode, Cape Spear, was written by Jacob Duarte Spiel and performed by Anthony Botello. The Wrong Station is made possible with the generous support of our listeners on Patreon. Thank you to Neil Robman, Bryant Wiley, Neil Losacci, Tina Louise, Emily Gordon, C.M. Lubinsky, Jackie Chow, Rebecca Lamkin, Brad Jacobs, and Patty Tracy for helping us keep the lights, well... You can also support us by leaving a rating and review on iTunes, or wherever it is you listen to The Wrong Station. The Wrong Station is co-produced by Alexander Saxton, Anthony Botello, and Jacob Duarte Spiel, with music composed and performed on the piano by Elon Citrin, and arranged for the viola and performed by Viola Schmidt. You can follow The Wrong Station on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and email us at therongstation at gmail.com. And until next time...